You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. The time now is 6 p.m. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, the LA City Council has approved Mayor Karen Bass' declaration of homelessness in the city as a state of emergency. We hear from journalist Matt Taibbi on the release of the Twitter files. Don DeBar explores multilateralism and regional integration in Latin America. Real talk about sex trafficking and its impact on black girls. All this and lots of local happenings coming up. Good evening. I'm your host, Angela Birdsong. And I'm your co-host, Paulina Vasiliev. First, we go to local news here in Los Angeles and Southern California. The LA Times today is reporting longstanding claims of racism, sexual harassment, and misconduct, including rape, homophobia, and transphobia at Cal State University's Maritime Academy, located in Fresno on the San Francisco Bay. The students who are called cadets are trained for careers at sea have complained about the abuse for years and say the university has not moved quick enough to address their concerns, according to a year-long L.A. Times investigation. Statements from the school claim they have strongly and repeatedly denounced misconduct and contend that they have taken a variety of actions to combat the problems. According to the Times and Cal State Maritime students, many of those actions have yet to be implemented. Meanwhile, down here in Los Angeles, the L.A. Times is also reporting that, according to the LAPD, hate crimes are up 13 percent this year over last year's total of 615 reported hate crimes. The Times writes, quote, so far in 2022, crimes against LGBTQ people have risen to 30 from 19 at this time last year, while those against Jewish people have jumped from 72 to 88. But as in other major cities, black Angelinos remain the most targeted group, the department figures show. The number of hate-related incidents involving black residents jumped 36 percent to 279, says the LAPD. The LAPD also says that, quote, the only group to see a decrease in the number of tax or other crimes was the city's Asian American and Pacific Islander subgroups which were victimized and 20% fewer incidents compared with a year ago when they experienced a sizable uptick in incidents. KPFK listeners will remember that President Biden signed an anti-hate crime legislation in May of 2021 in response to a surge of attacks against Asian Americans during the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. That legislation established a unit within the Justice Department centered specifically on anti-Asian hate crimes and resources to report them. The L.A. City Council has approved Mayor Karen Bass' declaration of homelessness in the city as a state of emergency. The vote by the council was temporarily sidetracked by the participation of disgraced Councilman Kevin DeLeon, whose resignation activists have demanded since his participation in racist discussions with other council members was captured and audio leaked back in November. Activists also believe that the council should not conduct business as usual until he does so. Mayor Bass' declaration will allow her to free up more resources to tackle the issue, such as quickly creating new interim housing for those who need it, as well as providing funds to organizations that outreach to L.A.'s unhoused population. According to the voice of BlackLA.com, however, the fact that Black Angelinos continue to be disproportionately impacted by homelessness in L.A. seems to be ignored by activists and policymakers, and they argue 
That must change. The site writes, quote, According to a 2019 report released by the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, Black Angelinos are only 8% of L.A.'s population. It represents almost 40% of the homeless population. The site states that while they understand that the plight of all unhoused Angelinos is important, they're simply asking for a collective effort and willingness to talk about the specific issues facing black Angelinos who continue to be the most impacted in L.A. In Riverside, the San Bernardino Sun is reporting that a local towing company has been operating in a predatory manner, primarily targeting Latino drivers and low-income individuals. The city of Riverside is alleging that Pepe's Towing has been towing and impounding vehicles from a local shopping center without the knowledge of the owner or managers of the shopping center, and that Pepe's did not have a contract with the shopping center to conduct such business. According to the suit, 662 vehicles were illegally towed and Pepe's raked in over $250,000 in towing fees between April 2019 and May 2021. Today's Santa Barbara Independent is reporting that in-home care caseworkers in the county will receive a 50-cent raise beginning January 1, 2023. Wages will now begin at $16.78 per hour. The program, which is designed to help allow folks who are elderly, disabled, or both to, quote, stay in their homes while receiving the care they need to be safe, currently has 3,600 in-home supportive services caseworkers for 4,200 recipients. A majority of caregivers, around 63%, are related by blood to the person that is receiving care, and the county is experiencing a shortage of registered caregivers. Recruitment is currently underway to hire more. KPFK listeners who are interested can call 1-866-313-1353 to get more information. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Hey there, Carol Chris. Red hair is ridiculous. Red hair is ridiculous. Hey there, Michael Drake. Hey there, Michael Drake. We cannot afford this place. The 48,000 striking University of California United Auto Workers Union Local 2865 workers are starting to build labor solidarity with railroad workers who faced an anti-labor bill by President Joe Biden and the Democrats and Republicans in Congress that forced them to accept an agreement with no sick days. On Tuesday, December 5th, at University of California, Berkeley, a solidarity rally was held by UCUAW 2865 strikers and undergraduates for the railway workers. Christopher Geary, a UC Santa Cruz UAW 2865 organizer, spoke to the strikers. My name is Chris. Uh, I am a rank and file organizer with UAW 2865. I'm a PhD student in English and I'm also an international student here. I'm from Ireland. What I'm going to do is uh, read a statement of solidarity and an analysis out by some rank-and-file workers uh, currently on strike at UC Santa Cruz just a few days ago. There is a common thread that runs through the current plight of railroad workers and the largest strike in the history of higher education at the University of California. And this common thread is the question of who sets the terms of workers' struggle. This question is posed in different ways. For instance, in the largest strike in the higher education sector across the UK, with the University and College Union, UCU, and most characteristically in the astonishing working class struggle waged by the rail, maritime, and transport workers in that country. As the House and the Senate in the US compete in a perpetual race to the bottom, a race they now think is over, a race to the bottom exemplified by the suppression of the will of the rail workers in the US, workers must carve out a unified path forward, even as previous options are seemingly foreclosed. For us, this means further widening the window created by tens of thousands of academic workers at a time when so many forces, our employer, 
government and labor liberals alike conspire to close the gap between our, the transformative character of our strike demands and the status quo that generated them. At UC Santa Cruz, at UC Berkeley, and across the University of California, we are building towards a long haul strike. We have argued that only through continuing to utilize and sharpen the strike weapon can we win our demands. This holds true whether or not a tentative agreement is reached within the coming hours or days. Whatever no vote campaign emerges must understand itself as a phase within the arc of the long haul strike. These demands, it must be stressed, are not impossible to achieve. They are within reach if our fight continues to understand them as principles guiding our strategy, rather than bargaining chips to be marshaled or discarded whenever it is most convenient. Those who deem capitulation the more effective strategy can and do succeed in demobilizing struggle. We are accustomed to expect. So often, work in higher education is conceived as paying your dues, as serving your time, as something to be endured rather than struggled against, neatly resolved by the prospects of career advancement. But in the case of our strike, we can perceive an alternative path. UC workers, in struggling over their conditions of work, have measurably raised the bar for what can be expected without a fight. And we should not expect scores of workers in higher ed to easily abandon the collective power and solidarity they have discovered in the strike. Should the rail workers, in the hopes of cutting a deal, have modified their demands for paid sick days in the face of the intransigence of the freight companies? No! And the lukewarm conciliation of Congress? No! The question is entirely meaningless. With such forces arrayed against the workers, there are not many options available, but with an urgency scarcely perceived in labor struggles of recent memory, it is the workers who will make the correct decision over the course of their struggle. Yes. And this is something no Congress or law can stop. Yes. The so-called cost of living crisis in the US and the UK is no less urgent than the strikes that have sparked in higher education brush up against the limits of legality in different ways. Labor law in the US is singularly repressive, but it is not only the UC's corporate lawyers that work to uphold it. Its repressive function has been internalized by the panic-stricken elements of union leadership. Many ordinary grad workers are justifiably confused by this. Why strike at all if the deals brokered three weeks into the strike appear no different from the deals offered prior to the strike? If this is the practice, what must be concluded is that concessions granted through the strike were concessions accepted before it began. And it is the strike itself which must be conceded next. There is an alternative conclusion, however, and one demonstrated by the workers at UC, at UCU, rank and file workers in the Union of, of Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees and BRS, among others, as well as rank and file workers in the RMT in the UK. When workers stand up for themselves collectively, and persist in doing so for as long as they deem necessary, existing labor laws and the desperate declarations of politicians are merely pieces of paper. It is clear that the struggles in the freight industry, those springing from the grueling conditions faced by workers there, are remarkably relevant for grad workers struggling to make a living in higher ed, and vice versa. As the rail workers themselves have acknowledged over the past weeks, and here today, the current rail barons have refashioned the industry in the image of their 19th century predecessors. Yep. Just as UC has attempted to reimagine the public system of higher ed as a vast sequence of private exchange run by administrators with no educational background or mandate. While UC has used public education as an alibi for its private investments, the freight companies, lacking such formalities, have carved out a system to all but ensure the desperation of its workers as the condition for its profits. Is this a difference in degree or a difference in kind from higher ed, where unionized workers are pitted against each other over an ever-shrinking pool of resources, and whose contract expiration serves as a reminder that they could always lose what they already have? One thing is clear. In whatever sector, in whatever location, 
The terms of workers' struggle will be set by the workers themselves. Solidarity forever! That was Christopher Geary speaking to University of California UAW 2865 striking workers and students about the connection between the fight of railway workers and their own labor struggle. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Based on the article entitled Real Talk About Sex Trafficking and Its Impact on Black Girls, written by Ashanti Polk, she discusses what sex trafficking actually is and what to do if you or someone you know is a victim of sex trafficking. My name is Ashanti Polk and I am 20 years old. I am currently a third year student at Los Angeles City College. I know we have all heard at least one story about sex trafficking this year, and it seems like it's not getting any better. So what exactly is sex trafficking? And what is the ratio of black girls being sex trafficked compared to their counterparts? Sex trafficking has been going on for so long, but now in 2022, it's becoming worse than it was before. Two major things I want to discuss today is what sex trafficking actually is, what to do if you were someone you know is a victim of sex trafficking, and the resources for it. If you see something, say something. Help the problem. Don't be a part of it. According to childwelfare.gov, sex trafficking refers to criminal activity whereby one or more persons are subjected to engaging in commercial sexual activity through the use of force, fraud, or coercion. If the trafficked person is younger than age 18, the commercial sexual activity need not involve force, fraud, or coercion. There are many ways perpetrators use tactics to lure their victims, and here are a few. One of the main tactics used in today's society is social media. It has been used as a way to recruit and control victims through restricting their social media access. Another popular tactic perpetrators use is false job advertisements. This tactic has been around for years. Predators will post a job advertisement and tell you to call the number to inquire for a job. This method seems crazy, I know, and you're probably even asking yourself, why would anyone fall for that? But in a world where everyone is hiring, this isn't far-fetched. Be careful before calling a suspicious number. And even a step further, be careful answering emails. People will send emails that say you have won so much amount of money, and in reality, that's a tactic to get your personal information. For young black females, it isn't easy being the victim. Not only are black girls disproportionately exploited, they are also perceived as perpetrators. 40 percent, 40%, 40% of sex trafficking victims are black. Overall, African-Americans represent the highest population of sex trafficking victims. Black women are seen as prostitutes rather than young children being taken advantage of. The reason for this is because black women are already seen as everything but humans. Women in general are portrayed as objects in punching bags. And black women specifically are viewed as super women who don't feel pain. When black women do cry out for help, it's overlooked and not taken seriously. That is why it is important. It is important for everyone who has a platform and for everyone who supports black women to be the voice black women need. If you see something, say something. Truth be told, we are never taken seriously. It's important to know what to do when you feel as if you are becoming a victim or know so know someone who is a victim. There are a few resources within our community that can help folks who are victims of sex trafficking or know someone who is a victim. The National Human Trafficking Hotline, number 1-888-373-7888. Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking, one 
888-539-2373. The Women's Leadership Project, a black feminist mentoring, civic engagement and service learning advocacy program. Enhancing resiliency among trafficking victims, treating the hidden wounds, trauma treatment and mental health recovery for victims of sex trafficking. My name is Ashanti Pope with the Women's Leadership Project reporting for KPFK Rebel Alliance News. Standing for Black Girls to End Rape Culture and Sexual Violence, Ashante Polk is one of the peer mentor educators with the Women's Leadership Project. Visit their website at womensleadershipla.org. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. And now we interrupt the news with a brief message from us to you, the listener. When we say this is listener-supported radio, what are we really saying? Listener-supported means it's your money that pays for these programs. And not only the programs, but the transmitters, the computers, the electricity, everything it takes to bring you those programs. So here's a very large thank you to you, the listener in listener-supported radio. If you haven't yet offered your support, please take that step now. Call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Or go to kpfk.org and pledge securely online. Thank you for listening and for supporting KPFK. Now back to the news. Now to the Twitter files, a series of Twitter threads based on internal Twittering documents shared by owner Elon Musk with freelance journalist Matt Taibbi, opinion writer Barry Weiss, and author Michael Schellenberger in the past days. Matt Taibbi spoke to journalist Glenn Greenwald about the big picture takeaways from the revelations. Number one for me, definitely, is you know the first time that we saw emails that said, concretely or not even emails slacks that said the fbi flagged this for us the dhs flagged this for us and we were able to follow the thread of basically requests for moderation from the government and seeing how that process worked on the back end we're still working out the whole mechanics of it but basically the the fact that the government is now provably in the business of monitoring speech at a pretty micro level uh, and flagging it for moderation, I, I, I think that's the biggest uh, news that we've broken uh, so far. Uh, there's obviously other stuff in there, and we're, we're starting to get the outlines of some things that are really interesting. Also, I would say the, the thing that Barry Weiss covered on day two the second installment of the Twitter files was about what norm, most people would call shadow banning, what they call visibility filtering, which we've learned a lot about. And you know, she, she published, among other things, uh, a big screenshot of an account that just has a notation on it that says trends blacklist, right? So you can see they have basically total ability to control how visible one person or one account is versus another. And so we, we, they can no longer say they don't do that. I want to focus on the first part of that answer for just a second, because if I had to name the most significant revelation, I would also name that one, namely the very direct, ongoing and regular participation of the U.S. security state in this process of having private companies decide what information we get, shortly before you began doing this reporting, Ken Klippenstein and Lee Fong got a hold of documents at The Intercept showing that Homeland Security has a major plan, much of which they've implemented, to insinuate themselves into that process. And now we have you're being able to show that not only is there this open communication, but you know you you also were able to show that Yoel Roth, one of the chief censors at Twitter, was almost gleeful about how frequently he was meeting 
with representatives of the FBI and Homeland Security. Why do you consider that so significant? Why should people care about that? Because it had only been speculated about before. Uh, what we're what we're seeing, and uh, there's there's a huge difference between, let's say, the FBI meeting regularly with the the head of trust and safety at Twitter and making recommendations in a general way. There's a big difference between that and what is actually happening, which is this huge in bulk operation of reports that are coming from a number of agencies asking for things to, well, they're, they're not, at, we don't know how the ask works yet. But they're definitely flagging things for for moderation, and we're seeing how that works. So, rather than be, it being speculative now, we now know the government is in the business of mass censoring, essentially. So, as you probably have heard, there were some criticisms of you being voiced among your fellow colleagues in the media profession and and others, and one of those was all sorts of wild conspiracy theories about the conditions to which they believed you must have agreed or that were imposed unilaterally by Elon Musk in order for you to do the reporting. One of those conditions you've acknowledged and was very obvious was that he wanted this reporting to be done on his platform and part of his effort to make Twitter a place where reporting is done. Others that people just asserted were things like you were paid by him, he told you what you can and can't say, he gave you certain kinds of access but not others. Are any of those things true? What were these conditions beyond the requirement that this be published in the first instance on Twitter? I outlined this on my site last night. There were two conditions. One of them was an attribution, sources of Twitter, and the other one was it has to be done on Twitter. So that's it. Let me focus on one of the, on the substance of part of the reporting, which for me is probably the single greatest journalistic scandal of the last several years. Um, I left my job over this, this, this story. For me, it was such a red line when Twitter and Facebook both united two weeks before Americans went to choose the president to ban this reporting that the New York Post did from the Hunter Biden laptop on Joe Biden's business interests in China and Ukraine. Talk about the excuse that Twitter used at the time to justify this brute censorship, unlike we've ever seen, and what your reporting revealed about that excuse. Well, first of all, they used an excuse that I don't think they even believe. I, I, I haven't been able to find a person who actually believed it. The internal justification for, uh, for, for stopping the story was the quote-unquote hacked materials policy. Uh, at Twitter, which is a thing they, they have used it before. They've, uh, on a couple of occasions, not allowed material that um, was hacked. That wouldn't happen on a newspaper. You're allowed to publish hacked material, as you very well know, and it's legal to do that. But within the first couple of hours, there were all sorts of people within the company saying, we can't really do this. Like, it's not going to, especially the comms people were saying, we can't keep saying this because no one believes it. So they eventually reverse course, but the, the internal justification for this, when you really drill down to it, and you can see it in exchanges with people like Yoel Roth, was we're afraid of what happened in 2016. Bruce story uh, hit the internet and hit the mainstream media and affected the election. So they, they were essentially, I, I think, afraid of, of a, an explosive news story impacting the election in a way they wouldn't like. That's really all it comes down to. That was Matt Taibbi discussing the Twitter files with journalist Glenn Greenwald. For KPFK Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. A federal court in Argentina has sentenced Vice President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner to six years in prison and perpetual disqualification from holding public office for the crime of fraudulent administration of public funds in the concession of roadworks. Esto es un estado paralelo y mafia. Mafia judicial. This is not just lawfare, this is a parallel state and mafia, judicial mafia, is how the Argentinian Vice President characterized the affair. 
Ben Norton, political analyst and founder of Multipolarista, explained the significance of Cristina Kirchner's legal persecution to Al Jazeera. Well, we need to understand that Argentina, until very recently in the 1980s, was a dictatorship. There were no democratic institutions until really 1983. And many of those institutions are very weak. And the judicial system is an example of this. And it is weaponized by the political opposition. In fact, since 2004, there have been 654 judicial cases filed, all, almost all of them frivolous, against Cristina Fernández de Kirchner by the right-wing opposition. In fact, six individuals, just those individuals, have filed between 20 and 74 lawsuits against her. So what we see is a constant concerted political attack using the, the judicial system against her as a weapon. It's mm -hmm. called lawfare, legal warfare. And we also have leaked messages and photos and videos showing that prosecutors and judges were conspiring with the right-wing opposition and with large media corporations like the Grupo Clarín, which is the main kind of conservative media outlet like Fox News mm -hmm. in Argentina, which supports the right-wing former president, Mauricio Macri. There are photos showing some of the prosecutors in an airport meeting with members of this company. When she says that there is a, a parallel mafia state that's not elected, I mean, that's not wrong. I mean, the reality is we have evidence showing that these compromised prosecutors were directly collaborating with the opposition and flying on their planes and going to their mansions. Josep Borrell, the high representative of the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, has found himself in hot water after he insulted the intelligence of Africans who expressed support for Russia. The EU's top diplomats said they probably don't know where Donbass is or even who Putin is. Russia is able to deflect blame, twist reality, and to find an audience in some part of the world. I've seen in the TV screens these uh, African young people on the streets of Bamako with a billboard saying, Putin, thanks, you have saved the Donbass and now you will save us. It's really shocking. Well, you can consider these people don't know where the Donbass is. Maybe they don't even know who is Putin. But uh, they are getting mobilized on the streets. And they see in some capital of a, a country who is a, a candidate to become a member of the European Union. You don't have to go to Bamako. You have to go to the Balkans. And you will see in, in the Balkans, uh, thanks. Happy birthday, Mr. Putin. Karabo Letlatla is in Johannesburg, South Africa, and he picks up the story. Well, these comments by Joseph Burrell do not surprise many on the continent, and they explain why Africa keeps looking eastwards for cooperation as well as development. These comments by Mr. Burrell really are not just racist, which offend many on the continent, but they've also come to be expected. It's the kind of archaic thought that have led many European countries to cover up Africa, divide a people, support conflicts, and only really come to Africa when they bring the cameras and aid. Europe has never really held Africa in terms of its development and for what they have taken from the African continent, one would imagine that they would give back. Mr. Borrell and the history of such comments really put paid to what we on the continent have always thought. We've wondered what kind of skills you need to have in order to become a policy chief, let alone an, an EU policy chief. Mr. Borrell does not have the wherewithal with words. He keeps saying these inciting statements, not only about Africans, but people of the rest of the world too. How is he able to travel the world and still represent Europe on a global stage, a community that considers itself leaders under such comments and such guises is still a baffle to many of us. The rest of the world, most of the rest of the world is the jungle. And the jungle could invade the garden. The gardeners has to go to the jungle. The Europeans has to be much more engaged with the rest of the world. Otherwise, the rest of the world will invade us. Mr. Borrell was not the only mind in the house. Some sanity prevailed with Aslam Timirel, who actually represented what a new kind of Europe 
should represent. I do think that this arrogant tone and the lack of respect that is heard coming from the European Union towards Africa is part of the problem, leading to Africans perhaps thinking that the salvation is going to come from Russia. And that is the kind of European mindset that Africans would like to at least engage with. And not that archaic mentality that we've seen from Mr. Burrell. People in Africa are seeing Europeans for what they are. We see them as they divert aid that would have otherwise helped people in Africa. And they pile it on all in their droves. The quantum that have gone to Ukraine following the conflict has really opened the eyes of, of the rest of the world with regards to where we are placed in terms of priorities for the European continent. They opened up borders following that conflict, welcomed Ukrainians with open arms, while Africans get chased back on their small little dinghy boats and they have to make that fateful crossing again to the motherland. Since his purchase of Twitter, Elon Musk has not restored the banned accounts of leftists and anti-war voices. Why has Elon Musk not restored the Twitter account of Julian Assange? Editor-in-chief of the Grey Zone, Max Blumenthal, asked this question at a vigil in support of Assange outside the British consulate in New York on Saturday. Why isn't he leaking the files about Russiagate? Why isn't he leaking the files about everyone who criticized the Ukraine proxy war being suspended? Why has Elon Musk not restored the Twitter account of Julian Assange? Can we at least free Julian Assange's Twitter account? I want to close by reading an email from Julian Assange. Hi all, I'm in Iceland. You should be too, or at least reporting about it. I've been in Iceland the past few weeks advising parliamentarians here on a cross-party proposal to turn Iceland into an international journalism haven, a jurisdiction designed to attract organizations into publishing online from Iceland by adopting the strongest press and source protection laws from around the world. In my role as WikiLeaks editor, I've been involved in fighting off many legal attacks. To do that and keep our sources safe, we have had to spread assets, encrypt everything, and move telecommunications and people around the world to activate protective laws and national jurisdictions. It goes on, but he says, that's why I'm excited about what is happening in Iceland, which has started to see the world in a new way after its mini-revolution a year ago. That was February 2010, and today Julian Assange has been captured. And he was captured because he was, and, and he's being tortured because he was leading a revolution in journalism. And it's, that's why. Not because he violated some Espionage Act. So it's our job today to continue that revolution, to continue the revolution that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks started, and to see Julian Assange standing here with us and his family to see that revolution through. Thank you. That was Max Blumenthal of The Grey Zone, and he will have the final word in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. And now we interrupt the news with a brief message from us to you, the listener. Whether you listen a little or a lot, whether you've been listening for a short time, or from the very beginning of KPFK, you are an important part of community radio. It's a fact, you are. How do we know that? Because you're listening right now. The average listener tends to turn off these fundraising appeals, but you, you stick around because you don't want to miss what comes next. Great programs brought to you by you. Call us now at 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Or go to kpfk.org and pledge securely online. Thank you for listening and for supporting KPFK. Now back to the news. In his continuing series on the rise of multilateralism, journalist and political analyst Don DeBar takes a look at some of the institutions of multilateralism and regional integration 
in the Latin America and Caribbean region with Nicaragua-based journalist Stephen Sefton. We continue our series today on multipolarity that's rising around the world, and we're looking at some of the poles that are forming in this hemisphere. We're going to go to Esteli, Nicaragua, and speak with journalist Stephen Sefton, and we're going to talk today about two organizations that have formed in the last three decades, Mercosur and CELAC, that helped the various countries of Latin America and the Caribbean stand tall on the world economic stage. So, Stephen, let's take a sort of a tour of the landscape of the various organizations and, uh, and structures that have been put together. Really, I guess, since the election of Hugo Chavez, some of it a little earlier than that, that are both expressions of multipolarity and, 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 and I guess uh, part of the architecture of building that, and also uh, the same for uh, integration that's been going on you know, across uh, the economies, uh, the, the social, the cultural uh, aspects of the entire region. So maybe start with whichever one of those organizations you want to start with. Well, and, uh, the, I think the oldest organization that has um, uh, the offered an opportunity to countries in Latin America and uh, the Caribbean to um, work together and coordinate, in particular, their, their, their economic policies, is Mercosur. And Mercosur was founded, I think, sometime in the 90s, um, and that includes the four southern cone countries of South America, uh, Chile, Argentina, uh, Brazil, and Uruguay. Um, and that is the oldest organization which has had quite a checkered history in terms of its development and is currently undergoing a crisis um, uh, because Uruguay, the smallest uh, member, oh, and of course it includes uh, uh, Paraguay. In fact, I think Chile is an observer organization. Uh, it's not a full member. Um, I think Bolivia is a full member, but that has been very problematic over the last few years, and because we can all remember the 2019 coup and the implications of that. And even Venezuela was um, uh, allowed to be a full member some years ago, but that was put on hold by um, the reactionary governments of Mauricio Macri in, uh, in particular, um, and the reactionary government in Paraguay, they, they, they blocked Venezuela's full participation in Mercosur. I don't want to spend too much time on Mercosur, but it's just worth pointing out that Brazil and Argentina in particular, of obviously being the, um, the, the probably the two biggest economies apart from Mexico in um, Latin America, and they are engaging in a process uh, right now of negotiating uh, bilateral trade in their own currencies and not using the dollar which they did before. So that, that's an important development inside Mercosur. Um, Uruguay is trying to break ranks and assign a, a, a unilateral free trade agreement with China, um, which they're not allowed to do under Mercosur rules, and it's not at all clear how that's going to pan out. And the Uruguayan government has taken a lot of flack from... Um, in particular Brazil and Argentina, over its uh, unilateral uh, position on that issue. And also Mercosur has had great difficulty negotiating an agreement. I'm not even sure that it, it has, in fact, negotiated its um, uh, trade agreement with the European Union. But that, and that, 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 that's Mercosur, and, and it has, it's an organization that reflects the to and fro between right-wing and progressive governments over the years. Um, and currently it has, as I said, this, this, this crisis involving uh, disagreements with Uruguay Just so you know, on, uh, with the EU, the current status in June 2019, the agreement, uh, EU-Mercosur Free Trade Agreement was confirmed, uh, which opens 100% of EU trade and 90% of Mercosur trade, but that has not been ratified as of today yet. Right, I mean that's what I figured. It's not. It's not uh, entirely formalised, um, and it has been a, a source of great contention between the European Union and, um, uh, in particular, Brazil and Argentina. I think. Anyway, so that that, that that's the oldest organisation, but I, uh, among the most important organisations, of course, um, are the the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, CELAC, by its Spanish acronym, and that uh, was 
really a, a, an, an astonishing development given the overall context of the region because it was um, promoted principally by Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro back in um, 2009, 2010, 2011. And I think it finally came into being around 2010, 2011. I'm sorry, I'm not great on the actual Yeah, February dates, 2010, that, yes. Right. So, um, and, and that was, what was so interesting about that is that CELAC brings together all varieties of ideo ideology and, 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 and the governments that subscribe to those different ideologies. So you had uh, a right-wing government in Mexico, you had a, a relatively right-wing government in Chile, um, uh, you had right-wing government in Peru, and, the, and, and they, 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 they all agreed to bury their ideological difference because they all recognized the importance of setting up uh, a regional body for Latin America and the Caribbean that would be capable of fighting its own corner as a region with, for example, um, in trade negotiations with the People's Republic of China, in negotiations with the European Union, and in, 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 in all kinds of negotiations with those kinds of bodies. I'm ASEAN, the, the Asian group, for example. Um, and it, it was, it was what was so interesting about it is that even though there, there were deep ideological differences between many of the leading um, figures, the political figures in the governments, in the regional governments concerned, they, they did manage to reach that agreement. And although, and I think it's true to say that uh, around 2015 and then with all the, the, the changes in Brazil from 2016 to 2018, the election of Jair Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro took uh, Brazil out of CELAC and he also took Brazil out of the um, South American organization UNISUR, right. which was the South American organization that was very, very important. I think it was founded back in 2006, 2007. And that organization was very important in maintaining stability in South America, for example, in the case of Bolivia, which was subject to extreme destabilization attempts by um, the United States and its local allies, in particular the so-called Media Luna um, right-wing extremists right. um, who were, were so prominent in the 2019 coup. But back in 2008, Evo Morales was able to appeal to the governments grouped in UNISUR um, to help that help uh, promote stability in Bolivia, and he got very strong support, in particular, of course, from Argentina, but also from Brazil, Lula in Brazil, and that was a, a, a key component in maintaining Bolivia's stability at that time and subsequently. So then. Um, in a more, uh, in, in a more on from a, in a more political key, because it's important to understand that uh, those organisations, CELAC and UNISUR, were organisations that deliberately set out to overcome ideological differences, so as to promote regional unity and strengthen the economic um, clout, if you like, or the economic right. possibilities um, of the region vis-a-vis big. Uh, block negotiators like the European Union, like uh, the United States, Mexico and Canada with their um, free trade uh, area agreement for North America with China, ASEAN and, 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 and so on. And it does too. Um, you have 32 countries with a combined GDP of $7 trillion a year. It's the third largest economy in the world. Yeah, and 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 although it's not uh, in terms of population, obviously it's much smaller than Asian countries like India and China. It does have a population of what is it, seven hundred and thirty million people, yeah, something like that. Plus million, million, so it's yeah. kind of twice the population of the United States, and uh, somewhat and half the size again of the European Union population. Oh, okay, so we have to, we're going to have to wrap it up here. Um, we have so 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 far we're starting with these two, Mercosur and Salac, and and both really world-class 
groupings that you know in a global economy these are these are poles in the global economy and and just becoming so it's going to be much more important going forward and so next week maybe we can pick up on some of the other uh, organizations and groups that have yeah, formed in particular alba very good alba was very key that's the child of chavez correct right chavez and fidel Bad Fidel, that's correct. Okay, uh, Stephen, thank you very much, and we'll speak with you again next week. Okay, you're very welcome, Don. Look forward to it. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. Released 53 years ago in 1969, Isaac Hayes' second studio album, Hot Butter Soul, started a subgenre called Symphonic Soul with lush strings and horns arranged by Johnny Allen on this four-track masterpiece. Allen later wins a Grammy with Hayes for the song arrangement of Theme from Shaft in 1972. Hot Butter Soul record gives extended tunes for a musical journey with covered songs and originals unlike no other in its era. This 1969 album with drum and bass sounds, long before the phrase was coined, still influences music producers in hip-hop, rap, R&B, and rock. Yes, Virginia, Isaac Hayes is more than just the chef on South Park. We salute Isaac Hayes and Hot Butter Soul as a moment of freedom now and music in history. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions, reporting for KPFK News. What it is, KPFK. Here is your Rebel Alliance News Community Calendar Tips. If you are in the Washington, D.C. area, join the Africa Anti-Imperialist Week of Actions for a picket line and rally on December 15th, followed by a press conference on the 16th. For more info, go to BlackAllianceForPeace.com under Get Involved and look for events. The Let's Be Whole program is giving away free bags of organic produce every week on Wednesdays in Lamert Park at Soul Folks 4317 Degnan Boulevard. Check out for details. Check out the Beastie Boys exhibit at Beyond the Streets, 434 North La Brea Avenue in Los Angeles, now until January 13th. Go to beyondthestreets.com for more info on this free showcase. Black Women for Wellness understands the importance of reclaiming our kitchens as a space where our families can experience health and wellness. Go to bwwla.org under media and publications to download a healthy lifestyle cookbook and guide for mommy and baby that includes recipes to support mamas in the fourth trimester through motherhood. Outdoor movie night at Jamaica Bay Inn, Marina Del Rey, with a Christmas-themed movie screening for free on the beachfront lawn. Screening starts at dusk on December 18th. California African American Museum, CAM, celebrates Kaumba, the Kwanzaa principle of creativity, with a special afternoon of storytelling featuring songs, puppetry, and interactive programs. Saturday, December 17th, from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. in Exposition Park near USC at CAM. All ages are welcome and it is free to attend. Check out caamuseum.org for more information. Join Stop LAPD Spine Coalition community meetings weekly Tuesday nights on Zoom at 6 p.m. Visit stoplapdspine.org or Facebook for details and check out their new program on KPFK Morning Mix Radio Insurrection, Thursdays, 8 a.m. Meet Impu Kamut for weekly Casa Taishi Shawan sessions on Zoom, Tuesdays and Fridays at 8.30 a.m. Saturdays, live in Lamert Park, 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. For more information, call 213-447-7700. The Wellness Purpose Group presents Women Empowerment Wednesdays, a safe space for current and future women of color business owners, 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. at Legacy Lounge, 
5084 West Pico Boulevard in Los Angeles. The next event is December 21st. Find the Wellness Purposed Group on Instagram for more info. Hanukkah Festival at Skirball brings the Hanukkah story to life with a theatrical performance featuring puppets, a community candle lighting at sunset, and more. Sunday, December 18th, 2 to 5.30 p.m. Get more info at skirball.org under Family Programs. If you or a youth you know needs help to get away from an abusive situation that involves human trafficking, for immediate assistance from trained staff, look for the Safe Youth Zone signs outside of any L.A. County DPSS offices, the Department of Public Social Services. Just step inside for a safe place for help. To find food pantries near you in the USA, go to foodfinder.us. To locate a Los Angeles Tenants Union meeting in your area online or over the phone, visit latenantsunion.org. For mental health resources, crisis support, helplines, and warm lines, go to namiurbanla.org under resources. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions, reporting for KPFK Rebel Alliance News. There's this relatively new concept in social media, the idea of crowdfunding. Sites like Indiegogo and Kickstarter have made it easy for people to launch campaigns to get their creative ideas funded by the community. Ideas that wouldn't normally have large scale commercial appeal are being made possible because many people one by one have invested in the project. Well, KPFK has been doing crowdfunding since before it was cool. In fact, We've been functioning under this model at KPFK for 55 years. So help us make this campaign successful. Call us at 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Or go to kpfk.org and pledge securely online and keep this creative idea around for generations to come. If you're listening now in Southern California or anywhere else around the world on kpfk.org, it means you care and that you find this radio station interesting and informative. And as much as you appreciate what we do here, there are thousands like you that benefit from KPFK. So please join the growing number of people who support KPFK because they know that this station is a university for all of us. No donation is too small or too large for that matter. Consider becoming a monthly sustainer at whatever level works for you. And make sure that KPFK continues to cover issues that matter to you. The number again is 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. You've been listening to KPFK, Rebel Alliance News. We're excited to bring back progressive news to Southern California and connect with the local community. If you want to become part of our news show, if you have story ideas or comments, please email us at news at kpfk.org. I'm Angela Birdsong. And I'm Paulina Vasiliev. And thanks to Tande Sizwe Shimaranga for writing the local news, Paulina Vasiliev for editing, Ziri Rodeau for leading Rebel Alliance News, our engineer, Wendell Handy, interim general manager, Michael Novick, and our KPFK members and listeners. Thank you. Yes, a lot of us have no money, 
But do you have money? Do you love KPFK? How about donating some of your disposable income to this indispensable radio station? KPFK gets by thanks to its listeners who value what they hear on these airwaves and send their dollars in direct support. Please call now, 818-985-5735 to make your pledge of $50, dollars or $25,000. All amounts are welcome. You can also pledge online at kpfk.org. Whatever you give, your support is appreciated, and with your help, it's going to be all right. This is Chris Hedges, author of America, The Farewell Tour, and you're listening to KPFK 